We are in Ephesians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. Our text this evening is Ephesians 1 verses 7 through 10. But as I read it, I want to begin in verse 3 just to set the context. So I'll begin reading Ephesians 1 verse 3 through to verse 10. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do marvel at your plan of redemption as Paul lays it out for us here, verse by verse, such rich truths for us to take in. We understand his goal is to elicit praise from our mouths towards you. That is your desire. And so we ask to that end this evening that you would so work in our hearts that we would bless you in response to the way in which you have blessed us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as we chart and continue to chart Paul's journey through Ephesians 1 of theological truth, as I just prayed, the goal, the overarching goal that remains is that we would bless God. That is Paul's desire to bring forth praise from the Ephesians, and it remains God's desire as this letter finds its way to us. We are to praise God, how? In response to how he has praised us. The manner in which we bless him is by knowing how he has blessed us, and the better we know it, the more accurate, the more biblical our praise will be. I'm looking forward in just a few weeks, to many children reciting this passage for me. In a very real way, the truth of Scripture that God ordains praise from the mouth of little ones will be lived out before us. And let that just be a challenge to you. There is no reason why you can't be memorizing this Scripture, understanding and trusting in the fact that it is tuning your heart to a biblical praise of God. Now, our verses this evening are 7 through 10. Before we jump in, I want to speak again a little bit more about the whole passage. It is one long sentence in the original language. And to make comment just on how complex it is. Wonderfully so. There are many, many layers to this one sentence. There are many ways to think about and to approach this one sentence None of them are wrong. All of them are valid. One thing that people often note about 
Paul's journey of theological truth here in Ephesians 1 is the progression, theologically, of time. So if you notice, last week we were speaking about things that happened before the foundation of the world. Before you were, God chose you. This evening we're focused perhaps more so on the immediate We will be thinking about the reality of our wisdom and insight that God has granted to us in the gospel for today. And then in just a few weeks' time, Lord willing, we will be thinking about things to come. As Paul talks about an inheritance that has been sealed for us. So there is, throughout this passage, a shifting of time. God lays out and shows us his plan for redemptive history from eternity past to eternity future. But there's another layer. There's another way to come at this text, and that would be to note its Trinitarian progression. Paul begins by speaking about God the Father. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. And then last week, we spoke about his election of believers. But as the passage moves on, the focus seems to shift more towards God the Son. And that would be where we are this evening. And then, sure enough, in a few weeks, we'll be thinking about God, the Holy Spirit. There is a Trinitarian progression in addition to working with the shift in time. And there are other layers too. They are just two of them that I give you by way of example to show you how profound, wonderfully complex and rich is this opening to the letter to the Ephesians. With the banner that remains, how do we praise God? How is it that we bless God? Our focus tonight becomes on the blood of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you picked that theme up in our singing this evening. Lots of songs oriented around the blood of Christ. And that is because Paul says in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. And then he starts to unpack some truths that spill out from the reality that Jesus shed his blood so that we might be reconciled to God. So if I can recast our governing question, tonight we might ask through this text, Why does the blood of Christ prompt me to praise God? That's how this text comes to us, with the overarching burden that Paul gives to us, that we as believers should be blessing God as a way of life. Within this unit, 7 through 10, that question could get respun. How then is it that the blood of Jesus prompts me to bless God? And just as with last week, we find that there are three pertinent reasons that Paul gives for us to praise God on account of Jesus' blood. Three reasons that we might praise God because of the blood of Christ. The first being because through his blood we have forgiveness. Through his blood we have forgiveness. Verse 7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This morning we thought about the new covenant and one of the things I said in leading was it is a theological truth 
that we tend not to think about all that often. We maybe think about its constituent parts now and again, but the new covenant as a package is a truth that we tend not to to fixate on all that often, to our detriment. Tonight, the opposite is true. The first reality with which we're confronted in the text is the forgiveness of sins. And maybe that is the truth that we rehearse most often. As Christians, Bible-believing Christians, perhaps the truth that we rehearse most frequently is the reality that our sins have been forgiven. And therein lies a danger. When anything becomes very, very frequent, the danger is we become complacent toward it. We rehearse the reality of sins forgiven so often that it starts to lose its appeal. It no longer stirs our hearts in the way it once did when we were first saved and we learned of these truths. We no longer are found with the same joy that was brought about in us when we said, my sins have been forgiven. So how is it that as we think about the reality of sins forgiven, we might genuinely, truly find within our hearts cause to bless God? in a way that is not under duress, is not reluctant, but is genuinely excited about this truth of the gospel? And the answer might be, you just ponder the truth of Scripture as it is found, because what you'll notice is that there are depths to the reality of sins forgiven that perhaps you haven't considered before. Look at how Paul tells us that truth in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is the first time in Ephesians that he says this truth so overtly. I wonder if that has occurred to you. We've been here for just a handful of weeks now, but we've covered a lot of ground theologically. And yet, thus far, Paul has not said overtly that your sins are forgiven. Now that says a lot. It says that there are many, many truths of the gospel that are leading up to and connected with the forgiveness of sins. The very fact that Paul has found cause to talk about other truths prior to mentioning the reality of the forgiveness of sins suggests there's an awful lot to unpack in any articulation of the gospel. It is a rich, rich message of which we must never grow tired. Then notice in verse 7 how he parallels the forgiveness of sins with redemption through his blood. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, comma, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So you see these two Parallel thoughts, side by side. There is no connecting conjunction. There is no relationship that he is articulating. He just states them up front, almost as if they're synonymous. Almost as if to say, I'm stating the idea a second time. And yet, theologically, these two ideas are not synonymous. They don't map onto each other exactly. There is a difference between the redemption that we have through his blood and the 
forgiveness of our trespasses. And so when you notice these grammatical relationships in an epistle like Ephesians, you are then bound to ask the question, so what is the relationship? This is the hard work of Bible study. And it's good for you to ponder these things. The text is asking for you to probe such relationships. What is the relationship between the redemption that we have through Christ's blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses? When we read redemption, it has in view release from captivity. It's what that word means. You've been released from bondage. We were thinking about this very truth last Sunday morning as we saw Jesus to be the greater Moses. Redemption is is talking of the release from bondage. And here, the bondage that is in view is our bondage to sin. It is a bondage which you did not have the power to release yourself from. You did not have the strength to cut the cords of sin that were wrapped around you. And neither did you have the inclination. That is why we have to have redemption through his blood. You see, that phrase is so important because if it's not there, we would be prone to attribute our redemption to us. But what Paul says is the redemption we have comes only through the blood of Christ. Nowhere else. The payment had to be a blood payment for our lives. It had to be another life. But it had to be a life that was perfect. And so we are released from the bondage to sin through his blood. Now just ponder that for a moment. We could, in theory, argue that our redemption does not necessarily pay our debt. The cords of bondage have been loosed. We've been set free. The reality is, new covenant realities, we rehearsed this this morning, the reality is we now no longer need to sin. We're no longer in bondage to sin. We're no longer dominated by sin. Do we sin? Yes. But we're not overpowered by sin. We are free from bondage. But what about the debt that we owe for our many, many, many sins prior to the moment of our release? And so what Paul does is he complements this truth. It is not synonymous. It is a complement. Redemption through his blood. You have been set free. No longer in bondage to sin. And by the way, that blood also accomplished for you a payment for your previous sins. Both are true in Christ. The cross secured for you a redemption a loosing of the cords of sin wrapped around you, and a payment. So now the slate is clean. This is why in John's gospel we read that Jesus came to set us free indeed. It is freedom of the utmost sort. You are free from your bondage to sin, and you have no debt to pay. Christians are those who are free indeed. This is the opposite of being a student. What do I mean by that? 
you enroll in a college and you pay thousands upon thousands upon thousands for some education. And then, a few months in, you realize that you are in bondage. <laughs> You're in bondage to books and to exams and to tests and to quizzes and to assignments. And the course of study goes on for maybe three or four years. And by the end, when you finally graduate, it is, in a very real sense, deliverance. I'm no longer in bondage to those books and those exams. But you still have a debt to pay. The debt hasn't gone. So you feel that debt weighing you down as you walk in some kind of freedom from that college. That is not how the gospel works. Paul says, in Christ, the debt has been paid and you are free from the cords of bondage. Both are true. They are wonderfully true at the cross of Jesus Christ through his blood. And so, as you meditate upon the blood of Christ, such strange people. I think about this morning and the, the peculiar nature of new covenant realities. Let me just add another one in there. Christians are those who think a lot about someone's blood. For good reason, as you meditate upon the blood of Jesus Christ, the praise that elicits from your heart and governs your steps and your thoughts and your words ought to be praise that is found living out a life of obedience. It is that simple. What does the praise look like that Paul has in mind as he says to us, Jesus' blood has made you free indeed? Answer that you would be found not sinning. That's it. That's a life of praise. If you want to praise the Father for your salvation and praise the Son for his death on the cross and praise the Holy Spirit for dwelling in you, live a life of obedience. Don't pursue a sin. I found this week as I was, I've been moving many books these last few weeks from one office to another and from our home and many, many boxes still in the garage and unpacking them and bringing them into my office. I found a book. It's a pamphlet. It's not even a book. It can't be called a book. It's a few pages. And it was published many, many years ago by the Banner of Truth. And the pamphlet is called A Principled Life of Obedience. And I, I smiled when I found it because for years, I used to carry that pamphlet around in my Bible, a principled life of obedience. And the author explains that as a Christian, you have a desire to honor God. As a Christian, you have the ability now to honor God. But, and this is his main point in that short pamphlet, the mechanism of obedience has not changed. You have a desire to honor God, you have an ability to honor God, but you have to obey. Undoubtedly, I've never met the author, I don't know who he is, I would love to ask him, what prompted you to write this? And I am almost certain he was writing it in response to some wayward Christian thinking that if you just do nothing, you will be found in obedience. 
It's not true. If you do nothing, the flesh will win. The principled life of obedience is that which God calls you to when he saves you. You have a desire to obey and you have the ability to obey. Now put your feet in the path of obedience. Work and strive with all that you have to live a life of praise to God in obedience to his word. Why? Because by his blood you have the forgiveness of sins. Second truth, how does the blood of Christ prompt us to praise God? Second truth, it gives to us wisdom. The blood of Christ gives to us wisdom. The thought continues now into verse 8. He lavished upon us the riches of his grace, end of verse 7. He lavished upon us the riches of his grace in all wisdom and insight. Now that phrase there, in all wisdom and insight, raises its own questions. Whose wisdom and insight is in view? Some would suggest it is God's. God, in his wisdom and insight, lavished upon us grace. Certainly, it is true that God is the source of all wisdom and all insight, and he is all wise and all knowing. That is true. But in this context, most likely, Paul has in mind wisdom and insight that has been given to us. We're in view as God lavished upon us the riches of his grace, and that grace came to us with wisdom and insight as its accompaniment. We inherited, as we received salvation in the gospel, we inherited wisdom and insight. Or to put it another way, as we were saved, we suddenly understood how the world works. As God saved us, our eyes were finally opened to the way in which life is supposed to be lived. When God saves you, he doesn't merely wipe the slate clean of your sins, past, present, and future, but he also equips you to live a God-honoring life with wisdom and insight. Now you see the sense of what God has ordained in his word, that it is good and right for us to live in accordance with it. Prior to your salvation, you did not see these things. Prior to your salvation, if your way aligned with God's way, it was merely coincidental. Because what was true is that you were always justifying your own paths. Unbelievers will always justify their own paths as the very best way. They will reason it is the very best way that I get a divorce. I am persuaded that the wisest thing to do right now is to have an abortion. I am persuaded that right now, though God's word might say this, I'm actually going to run a course completely in the opposite direction, and I believe it to be best. That is the way of the unbeliever. When you are reconciled to God through Christ, now you see the way the world is supposed to work. Now you see why his way is best. 
everything falls into place. Previously, you thought you could break God's law. Here's a precept ordained by God, and I'm actually, I'm smarter than him, and so I'm going to work against it, and I'll choose to break God's law. What you didn't realize is that you can't break God's law. It will break you. The law will always stand. It comes from an eternal God, and so you can't break it, but it will break you. As you choose to run a different course, you will feel the pain and the misery that is brought about through your disobedience. But when God saves you, now you see the rightness of his commands. Now you see the wisdom in what he ordains. Not that all of a sudden it becomes easy to obey but you see the appropriateness of what he has given to us in his word. Children, you see that it is right to obey your parents. It's best. It's not always easy. We make mistakes. It's not always easy to obey, but it's the best thing for you. And you see it with new eyes. We see that though marriage is hard, that it's not always easy, it is best to persevere, that you honor that lifelong commitment with the marriage vows you made on your wedding day, choosing to love in a way that represents God's love. You see the rightness of that command. You see that it's not wise to cheat on your tax return. You could get away with it and you might have a few more dollars to show for it, but you see the wisdom in denying yourself that because God has opened your eyes and given to you insight according to the gospel. You now see how the way the, way the world works. However, all of that being true, Paul has a very specific application of wisdom and insight in mind, which he then tells us about in verse 9. With all of that being true, Paul narrows down the application of wisdom and insight by saying in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. That's the specific application of our eyes having been opened, We now understand the way the world works, how we ought to live, and that it is best for us. But in addition, and Paul's point, is you now have wisdom and insight as it relates to the mystery. So you can tell that the next question we need to ask is, what is the mystery? Paul uses the word mystery many times throughout his writings. You can do a word search and see that This is a term that Paul is very fond of. And an interesting thing is that Paul doesn't always use it to mean the same thing. You have to study the immediate context. Someone famously said, a word will be known by the company it keeps. So when you come across mystery in Corinthians and you work hard to determine what Paul means by mystery to the Corinthians, don't assume Don't assume that that same meaning 
is intended when he uses the same word in Ephesians, because it's not. Paul has license to use this word in different ways, in different contexts. In Ephesians, the word mystery is used predominantly to speak about the glory of the church. When Paul talks about mystery in Ephesians, he talks about the wonder that Jew and Gentile have been brought together in one body. That's what mystery means in Ephesians. Very soon we'll get into Paul's discourse about the Jews and the Gentiles and the divide. And he says the dividing wall has been broken down. The Jews and the Gentiles have been brought together in one body. And the reason he says it was a mystery is because as you search the Old Testament scriptures, you don't see that doctrine played out in any sense of fullness such that they would have been anticipating it. What you see in the Old Testament scriptures is that Gentiles had the opportunity to worship this God, but the way in which they would do so is to become a Jew. That was what was the system in the Old Testament. Think of Rahab and think of Ruth. These are non-Israelite women who have a desire to worship Israel's God. So what do they do? They become Jews. Your people will be my people, says Ruth. I want to become who you are. That's how I get access to this God. That was the Old Testament way. In the New Testament, God reveals his bride, the church. And he says, Jew and Gentile have been brought together in one body and it is glorious. And the Jew doesn't have to become a Gentile and the Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew. This was the decision that they were pondering in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. The first ever church council was around this issue. All these Gentiles professing faith in Jesus Christ. And the Jews are disgruntled. They don't like it. And they say they have to become Jewish. So the church leaders gather together for the first council in all of church history. And they discuss the issue. And their conclusion is, no, they don't. They're putting on display their awareness of the mystery. They are showing us that they have insight as it relates to the church. They don't have to become Jews in order to be Christians. But they do have to become Christians to be Christians. That's the Jerusalem Council, and one day we'll talk about it. The point is, God has made known to us Wonderful things as he makes plain his plan for the church. Anyone is allowed membership here. So long as they put their faith in Jesus Christ as their savior. No one is excluded from the church. So long as Jesus is their Lord and savior. Now the application, the way in which we praise in response to the wisdom and insight that God has given us as it relates to the mystery is simple. It is that you would love and be all about the local church, especially in its diversity. You would love and be all about the local church. It would be the defining feature of your life. Tell me about so-and-so. Well, there's one thing you need to know. They love the church. That should be you. Especially 
in its wonderful diversity. Have you ever noticed that in any local church, God has brought together people who apart from the gospel would have no good reason to be sharing their lives with one another? It is true of every church. I often just sit and ponder And I get to look at you in a unique way that you don't get to see you right now. But I get to stand here and see how this person would have no cause to be sharing their life with this person. But the gospel brings them together. These folks over here would never overlap with these folks in the ordinary course of everyday life. But the gospel brings them together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And now what we're seeing is that this person over here is laying down his life for the goodness of this person over here. This family over here are laying down their lives for the benefit of this person over here. They have no cause for their lives to overlap except for the gospel. And now how they love one another. That is how the local church praises God for the wisdom and insight that we have been given according to the mystery. Make sure that is your manner in this local church. Do not fall into the trap. I want to be very, very practical here. Don't fall into the trap when you arrive on a Sunday of gravitating towards and spending time with and speaking to those people who you already know and you already love because they look very much like you do. That tends to be the principle that governs our fellowship. If we're not on guard, if we're not watching ourselves, we gravitate towards those folks that look most like us. He likes the same things as me. He does the same things as me. We understand one another on issues apart from the gospel. Guess where I spend my time on a Sunday morning? Don't behave like that in the local church. A piece of counsel that I often give to folks as they come and they say, I want, I want to be discipled. I want somebody to, to pour into my life and sharpen me. I say, go and find someone who looks very different to you. Go and find someone in the church that looks very different. Their life is nothing like your life. They're saved. Their sins are forgiven. But apart from that, you don't have all that much in common. Hang around that person. Because I guarantee you've got things to learn from them. You've got blind spots that they don't have. So go be with them. Don't gravitate towards those that it's just easy to get on with because they look like you. If this is the way in which you behave in the local church, then God will be praised. We need to celebrate what a diverse group of people we are. We need to celebrate the fact that you don't have anything in common with me. Isn't that wonderful? That's what we need to be like because it honors God. It praises Him. It blesses Him since He has given us wisdom according to the mystery that is the church. The third reason by which we might bless God because of Jesus' blood is that he's brought us into an eternal plan. He's forgiven our trespasses. He has granted us wisdom. 
And thirdly, he has brought us into an eternal plan. Notice verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So there's a, there's a purpose that just got brought into view. He's speaking about wisdom and insight as it relates to the church. And then Paul says, according to his purpose. There's, there's a purpose, there's a goal in mind. The goal has been set forth in Christ. Then, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. And so even within this unit, not to mention the broader paragraph, even within this unit, Paul stretches from the immediate to eternity future. And he says, as you were saved, trespasses forgiven, as you were brought into the church, there is a plan in view which results in all things being united together in Christ. I think Paul has in view the final day of salvation history. To some degree, we saw this being worked out in Jesus' first coming, him bringing things unto himself, many disciples. But we only saw a fraction of what will be true when Jesus returns and wraps up salvation history. When Christ returns, and when God says, it's done, it's over, salvation history has reached its terminal point, when that happens, every single atom on planet Earth will be found praising Christ. There is nothing in the universe that will turn a blind eye to the return of Christ. I often wonder how it will be that when Christ returns, every eye will see him. How will that be? I don't know physically how that's going to happen, but I trust it will happen because God's word says it will. So when he returns, every single person on earth will bow their knee in submission to the Lord who is Jesus. You do not need to doubt that fact, but understand the manner in which the knee will be bowed will be markedly different depending on your response to Christ now. There will be many who will bow the knee in joyful celebration at the appearance of Christ. We will be united to him in a way that is even more evident than we are united to him now. We will see him, and we will celebrate, and we will fall on the floor in worship, and it will be a wonderful day. There will be millions who bow the knee in terror, who turned their backs to Jesus their whole earthly life, and now he stood before them. And they recognize instantly their mistake. They recognize instantly the hard-heartedness of their hearts. They recognize instantly the gravity of their sin before a holy God and the fact that there was a way of salvation presented to them and they didn't take it. And they will bow their knee. 
but with the utmost terror as to what's about to ensue. In addition, it says all things. In addition, the oceans will bow the knee. Do you ever think about that? The mountain ranges will bow the knee. The forests and the highways and the deserts and the tundra, it would all praise Jesus on that day. This is how Paul can say in Romans, all creation is groaning. It is not just Christians. We groan for the return of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. Paul says, all creation is groaning. The whole cosmos is waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in a way that we can't get our minds around, the mountains will bow the knee and pay honor to the Savior. Creation will know the fullness of its redemption in that day. All things will be united in Him. You need to meditate upon these realities. I talked last week about our future salvation. And the importance that it is for a Christian to be mindful and bringing to mind often the future realities of our salvation. You need to meditate upon the precious blood of Jesus and the fact that it has brought you into a plan that has a purpose in the end of salvation history when all things will be united to him. And as you meditate upon that, as you pursue the discipline. The discipline of bringing to mind these truths, your heart will start to respond with praise. That's how this works. You have to have a discipline in your life of meditating upon Scripture. This is why Scripture memorization is so important. You have to get this in here and it doesn't go easily. So you do it hundreds of times. And as you do it, guess what? It starts to go down to here. And now you find affections in your heart towards God that haven't been awakened perhaps for some time. What would be the praise that we give to God in response to the fullness of his plan? It would be to live boldly confident lives in Christ. Now, I say that with reference to the original context that Paul is writing into. Think back to that first Sunday night for us when we were in the book of Acts as a precursor to this letter. Think back to that night. The Ephesians were being faced with opposition, namely those that were worshipping at the Artemis temple. You remember there are many going to worship the goddess Artemis. And they're starting to feel the heat because as people are being saved to the way, the business of the the folks around the temple who make their trinkets and sell them is being lost. So there's a riot about this. And then Paul goes, the Holy Spirit calls him and he leaves Ephesus and now they're without their leader and the heat remains. And so I think Paul knows that there is a temptation for them to step back and to start to hide their identity in Christ. To start to behave in such a way that the world would be forgiven if they thought you're ashamed of your faith. 
The world looks at you. Guaranteed, the world is watching you. Insomuch as you have known, made it known that you are a Christian, I guarantee someone is watching you. And they are drawing conclusions about the Christian faith and about Jesus based on how you live your life. You don't want them to say, I think he's embarrassed about his faith. Paul didn't want the pagans in Ephesus to say that about the Christians. He wanted the pagans to say, look how confident they are in their right standing before God. We don't buy it, but look how sure they are of it. That is how we're to live our lives. Not with arrogance, not with pride, with the utmost humility and the utmost meekness, but confident of our salvation in Christ and all that we possess in him. That's how you praise God. You need to live your life in such a way that people know that your joy is found in Jesus. It's not hidden. It's not tucked away. But you're happy to showcase your faith in so much as it points to a wonderful Savior. And as we respond in praise, in those ways, God will be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we praise you tonight for the precious blood of Jesus. We praise you tonight for the precious blood of your Son. He died on a cross at Calvary. And by that we are saved. We are set free. We see from the text that our sins are forgiven and the cords of bondage are loosened so that we are those who are free indeed. May our response of praise be that we would live a principled life of obedience, striving to do all that we can to get our lives under your word, refusing to pursue known sins, because in this way we praise you. Father, we praise you tonight for the precious blood of Jesus that gives to us wisdom and insight We now see as you see. We see the way the world is supposed to work. We see the rightness of your law. We see how it is good for us to obey. And we see especially that your plan is to bring together Jew and Gentile people from all walks of life into the church, the bride of Christ. May we embrace your plan. May we be all about the local church, especially embracing the diversity that is here. People from all walks of life who perhaps if it were not for the gospel would have no cause to overlap with one another. And yet in your wisdom, you have brought us together to this local church. Father, help us to embrace that glorious plan because by it we praise you. And we see that that 
design, that mystery has a goal. It has a purpose. Namely, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, all things will be united together in him. The cosmos will bow the knee in praise of Jesus. That is where we're headed. And our salvation is secure. So, in praise, would we live boldly, confident lives as disciples of Christ. Guard us against pride. Guard us against arrogance. Foster in us the utmost humility and meekness. But Lord, cause us to put our faith on display. So that the watching world would know that our joy and our confidence is in Christ alone. By this, you will be blessed. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.